1: Welcome to those who are joining us online. Um, We're going to start, we're going to take a break, actually, from 2 Corinthians uh, this week. I I had something else in my heart that I wanted to share with with everyone. Um, And I'm actually going to start with a question for the little kids. So, little kids, raise your hands. All right, this is for you. Area, look at you, you're not. So, all right, this is for you guys. Uh, It's really the most important question I think everyone needs to answer at some point in their lives. And I I don't use that with any kind of hyperbole. I thought about it all week. It really is. And no, it's not about Pepsi or Coke. No, it's not about country music. I'm not taking the bait. I'm going to show some maturity this week, this week only. Uh, But it's a serious question. It's a serious question. The question is, who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? So little kids, I, I see Naomi over there. We're going to start with Naomi. How would you answer that question, who is Jesus?
0: Son of
1: God. The son of God. Good, good. This is really a test for the Sunday school teachers, by the way. It's not really about the kids. I, I was thinking the parents. Yeah. <laughs> oh, parents too. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Uh, next, for, who else wants to answer that question? Who is Jesus? Any, anyone? 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 All right, Caleb. I am worried as a parent, though, now. So I'm concerned about it. That's why I was trying to to avoid it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Jesus is one of the, well, spirits, I can say, of the Holy Tribody.
1: All right. Good. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Anyone else want to add to that answer to who is Jesus? Any kids? You got one back of faith back here? I can't see. Is there anything about that? Yeah, it's I just see a bright light. So, okay, we got one more over here.
0: Our Father.
1: Our Father, okay. And we got one up here. We're going to make Greg walk. I like that. Okay. That's good. Who? who sorry. Over. At the front. Who is Jesus?
0: Jesus is love.
1: Jesus is love. Oh, very good. Very good. Very good. One more, one more. Anyone else, any little kids got one more thought about who Jesus is? All right, well, we'll stop there. Kids are shy, that's good. Well, well done, kids. You've done, uh, you've done really well. Like I said, it's, it's a crucial question. It's a question that every one of us needs to answer at some point in our lives. And it's interesting, you, in, the, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there came a point where Jesus, he turned to his disciples, and he says, What's the word on the street? What are, you, what are you hearing people say about who I am? And, and I, kind of, I kind of wondered what that would have been like if he asked that question today, right? Like, what, what's happening on Twitter? What's happening on social media? What are the hashtags about who is Jesus? And I, I can imagine you'd have all kinds of different answers to that, uh, much like they had different answers back then. Some were saying he's John the Baptist. Some were saying he's Elijah. Some were saying he's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. They had all kinds of ideas about who Jesus was. And then I'm sure there would be other people who had been saying, Well, he's not real, he's a fake Messiah, he's he's an imposter, and all kinds of ideas about who he is. But we we need to understand who he is. And and Peter finally, when Jesus asked Peter, Well, who do you say that I am? Peter's answer was, You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Savior, you're the one we've been waiting for. And and Jesus says, On that truth, the church of God we built. So it's so critical. It's so fundamental to, um, to our faith. And, and, and I think also then feeds into that trust. That depending on who we think God is, who we think Jesus is, and his, even his heart and his attitude towards us, that's going to change the degree to which we're willing to trust him. So hopefully this morning we can begin to, to see the glory and the majesty of this God that we worship. So let's pray. Well, Father, you've, you've put it on my heart to speak to us this morning about who you are, about who, who you are, Jesus, and, and the glory and the magnitude of who you are, that we would worship and praise you with all we got. And that's a tall order, but I'm confident that your spirit will do it, that, Father, you will be able to convey to our tiny little minds the glory and majesty of who you are in such a way that we fall deeper in love with you, a deeper trust and a deeper worship of who you are. Thank you for all that you're about to do this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the world would would try to dismiss Jesus as just being a good teacher. Uh, a good philosopher, uh, a good, good person who's got some good ideas and some good morals that, to, that you and I should maybe consider or, or to follow. But they would try to lump him in with other historical figures, uh, Socrates or Gandhi or, or so forth. And they're just, just all kind of on the same plane. But the reality is he's, he's much more than just a prophet. He's much more than just a teacher. He's much more than a philosopher. Even though he would do all those things, he was much greater than that. C.S. Lewis asked a, a very famous question in his apologetics, his way of trying to get people to think about who Jesus is. He says there's really only three answers to it. He's either, he's either a, a liar, uh, he's, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. It's one of the three. He's either lying about who he says he is, he's crazy because he thinks he's God, or he is in fact who he says he is. It's only one of those three. And and the reality is, he wasn't crazy, and he wasn't lying. He was and is God. Now, some would like to say, well, he never actually claimed that to be the case, but that's not true. In John chapter 8, he was speaking to a group of Pharisees around him, and and they were questioning about his authority and by what right he would have to, to say and do some of the things that he was doing. And he makes a statement. He says, before Abraham, I am. Now, what does that mean? What was he trying to imply about before Abraham was? Before Abraham existed, I am. What is he declaring? I am God. The I am being very, very important there because the great I am was God himself. And to make that declaration that before Abraham even existed, I am and was and it will be God, it was understood by those people as blasphemy. How do we know that? Because they tried to kill him at that point. Because of blasphemy, they immediately picked up stones to try to put him to death. And so even God himself, Jesus makes that claim that he is God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 in verse 3, he says this, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. That's really important to understand that because sometimes we have this idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. That you have the God of the Old Testament, and he's a bit harsher, he's a bit more warring, he's, he's out to, out for blood a little bit, more judgmental. And then you have the God of the New Testament, Jesus, and he's gentle and kind and great with kids. <laughs> and, and it's interesting, because I've played for people two clips. I've played a clip of William Wallace from Braveheart. You all know who William Wallace is? If you don't, God have mercy on your souls. <laughs> I will, I will judge you for that. That Braveheart incredible movie. you got to watch it. It's, it's, it's incredible. And you see William Wallace. He's got the face paint on. And I'm tempted to show up one morning with it. You know, face paint, hair going wild. Just let's go to it, right? So he's all crazy and wild. Don't he, no, no, no. Don't encourage that. <laughs> I stepped into that one, didn't I? So, so I play that clip, and he's like firing everyone up. And, and then I play a clip of Mr. Rogers. You know, Fred Rogers, Cardigan, <laughs> w- w- won't you be my neighbor? And I say, which one of these two represents God and which one represents Jesus? And, and most people say, well, William Wallace, that was God. and Jesus was Fred Rogers. And the reality is both represent who Jesus is. Both represent the, the nature of him. And we see that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. And when we see Jesus, we're actually seeing the Father. We're seeing what the Father is like. He's the exact representation of him. And so we're getting to see that Jesus is more than just any regular person. He's God himself. He is the creator of all things. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens, on an earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus was the one that spoke everything into existence. And so he's the creator of everything. We're just beginning to scratch the surface on the immense size of who God is. But you know, sometimes I have doubts. Sometimes I have doubts that this is actually real. Maybe even like I'll, I'll be here on a Sunday morning and, and we'll share a great time together and, and I can feel God working and, and I just and marveling over what God did and then driving home start to think, is any of this actually real? Am I just making it up? And I'll have these doubts and these questions. And then I look around, and I look at creation, and I look what's here, and I I, I can't, can't conclude that this is here by accident. That if there's a creation, there has to be a creator. And that creator is Jesus. That creator is God. And so those, if you have those doubts, it's OK. Those doubts are normal. Those doubts happen to all of us. But when you have those doubts, look around. Look around the beauty. Look around the stars of the sky. Look around at what's around us. And you will have to conclude that if if any of this is real, then Jesus is real too. So we see that Jesus is God, God himself. But he came to earth in human form. And so now we see that that Jesus is the son of God, but he's also this other phrase, the son of man. And, and I think both those titles are really important because what it's showing to us is that Jesus being fully God comes and lives as a man, but he's fully man. And that 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 aspect of him, that uh, that duality of his nature allows him now to be our mediator, to be our Emmanuel. Remember, that's what they were to call him, Emmanuel, God with us. And so Jesus shows up here on planet Earth as this little baby growing up, facing everything in this world to be the mediator between man and God, between fallen man and a holy, righteous God. Why would he do that? What What would possess God, what would possess Jesus to leave heaven to leave paradise up there, to have all these angels serving him to come and live as a, as a man in a sin-sick, sin-cursed world. And there's only one answer, and it's, it's love. Think about John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. He loved his creation. He loved mankind that that motivated him, that drove his heart. You see, to really know someone, you have to know their heart. You have to know what drives them. And what drove Jesus was his love for you and I. That passion, that desire to come and and rescue us. And and I love how, how Paul writes it in Romans 5 and 6, and then in 8, verse 6, for while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Please notice that it wasn't that when you got your act together that God loved you. It wasn't when you figured things out in your life that now God accepted you. That was while you were ungodly, while you were, while you were a sinner. Verse 9 goes on and talks about while you're his enemy, while your life was a mess. While you were in into your uh, no over your head in sin, that's when he loved you. That's when he died for you. That's when he came to rescue you. And I say that because too often what happens is we we hear that at salvation, that it just doesn't matter what you've done or who you did it with or how many times you did it, just come to Jesus because he's got open arms and he loves you and he accepts you as you are. But then the message flips. That somehow that after salvation, God's acceptance of you changes now. That now it's conditional. Now it's based on how clean you are, based on your choices and and based on how well you're doing. And it doesn't change because his love was never reactionary in the first place. It didn't become reactionary after salvation. His love is constant and consistent and he loves you where you're at. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, he loves you. And that love for you and I is gentle. That love for you and I is filled with compassion. It's filled with understanding. Think about what we see Jesus in the Gospels and those stories. Think about Jesus and those little children. You know, he invited the children to come to him. He wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't overwhelmed by them, and he had time for them. That's a soft hand. That's a gentle hand to these little, little children who, for the most part, would be deemed un- unimportant, not worth the time of such great a teacher. And there was Jesus right there, eyeball to eyeball with them. And then there was the, the woman at the well, you know, the, 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 the Samaritan woman, who was someone different than the Jews, someone the Jews looked down upon. And then not only that, but she was a woman. And at that time, that was a bad thing as well. And yet Jesus had all the time in the world for her. Or we have the woman caught in adultery. Someone who was caught in the act of sin. And we see again Jesus showing grace and mercy towards her. Or the crowds that are pressing in on Jesus and all the expectations they had on him. And he had time for them. He was rejected by many, rejected by, uh, by the rich young ruler, rejected by the Pharisees, rejected by people who wanted to, to crucify him over Barabbas, even rejected by his own disciples. And so he understands what it's like to live in this world. He understands what it's like to be used as a free meal because there were people who followed him just because of what, what they could get from him, but they weren't interested in him. And he understood what it meant to be alone. He understood what it meant to face temptation, because for 40 days he was out in the wilderness, no food, no provisions, all alone, being tempted in every which way from Satan. That's almost six weeks out in that wilderness alone without food. So he understands what it means to, to be without something and to go through all that. He gets it. But but don't mistake that gentleness and that compassion as, as weakness. Because you know, me- meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. So Jesus is no pushover. He was William Wallace. He was that warrior. Think about when he walked into the temple with a whip and overturn the money tables and chase the money changers out, the, out of the temple. One man all by himself. We'd see the strength and the power that he had. Or, or even the ability to face down his critics and be able to respond to them and address them, not in a way that, that overpowered them and embarrassed them per se, but he was able to speak to them. And he didn't lose his cool. He didn't lose his temper on them. As C.S. Lewis likes to note in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's a good lion, but not a tame lion. And I think sometimes we struggle that with God, is that that he's not tame, meaning you and I can't control him. We can't manipulate him. We can't make him do what we want him to do. He's going to do what he wants to do. And he can because of his strength and his power. So that's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. Jesus. And what does he do now is he comes to rescue us. Again, when when Jesus turned to his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? Jesus said, you're the Messiah. That's a Hebrew word, which is equal to the Greek word of Christ, which is equal to the English word Savior. So whenever you see Messiah or Christ or Savior, they're all the same word. And it's the one who saves us. It's the one who's going to rescue us. And so what Peter was declaring is, you're the one that's going to rescue us in our mess. You're the one that's going to save me in my trouble. No matter what trouble it is, Jesus, that's your job. That's your role. And that's exactly what he came to do. To be that savior, to be the one that rescues us. The very start of Jesus' ministry there's a, a famous story there where he walks into to a temple, into a synagogue, and, and there's a moment where people say, anyone want to read a passage? Here's your chance. And Jesus steps up, almost as an introduction to his public ministry. And he, he pulls a scroll off the shelf, Isaiah 61. And it's quoted for us in, in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's his mission statement. That's the work that he's going to do on that cross some three and a half years later. Setting free the captives, binding up the brokenhearted, And he did that as the Lamb of God, the perfect and only one qualified to be our sacrifice. Because, see, that's what was hanging over our heads. Because of Adam's sin, we are all plunged into death. We're all plunged into condemnation. we were all plunged into being made sinners. We're all plunged into this loneliness and isolation where shame and death just dominated us where sin was our master and our controller. And so there had to be a price uh, that was paid. There had to be a ransom to be paid. And the only one that could pay that ransom was someone who was perfect. You and I couldn't do that. As perfect as Ian is, he still doesn't qualify. He's close. It had to be Jesus. It had to be Jesus that was going to be that sacrifice. And so that's what he does. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul writes, for I deliver to you of first importance, the the first and most important ABCs of of Christianity is what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the foundation of our faith, that Jesus, the Son of God, was the sacrifice. He was crucified, He was buried, and rose again that you and I could go free. And that's one of the, the great truths that separates our faith from every other religion. Every other religion is based on what you're going to do. Maria, you got to clean up your act. you got to work harder. You've got you to get everything sorted so that you can climb the mountain and sit with God. But it's on you to do it. That's how other religions work. But with Jesus, he leaves the mountain. And he comes down into the the muck and the mire and the dirt of the pit that we're in. And he pulls us out. And he rescues us. And then you and I are forgiven. All of your sins. Think about that. Every single one. Yeah, even that one you're thinking about right now. He forgave it. He paid the price already dealt with. And now, today, there's an empty tomb. Death couldn't hold him. He has overcome death and through his resurrection, and he's alive today now. And because of that, now you and I have an opportunity to have a relationship with our Father. So in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God, and that's Jesus. That's why he says, I'm the gate, I'm the door. I'm the only way to have a relationship with, with God. And he made it possible on the cross. And while the, John 10, 10, the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so that's what we have today. So because of the work on the cross, it matters for our lives today because we have his life now. Well, what does that mean? Well, he said that I am the bread and the life. Uh, and literally, the word bread means I am the manna. He's, he's kind of getting the Jews that are listening to him to think back to when Israel was in the wilderness. Remember, they were wandering the wilderness for 40 days, or 40 years, sorry, in the wilderness. How did they survive? What was the food that they lived off of? The manna and the quail, right, that God sent to them every day. All that they needed, all that they required was there, provided to them by God. And what what God was doing with that was each day he was teaching them to trust. Just like Kat said, he's he's teaching us to trust him. That's what he was teaching the the Jews in the wilderness. And now he says to these people, he says, I am that bread. I'm the one you trust in. I'm the one that's going to supply to you everything you need in this world. The strength, the sustenance, the power. It's coming from me. I am the bread and the life. And so in Colossians 3, 3 and 4, Paul writes, for you have died. For you have died. The old you is gone, crucified with Christ, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Can you be any safer than in Christ and God? And when Christ, who is now our life, notice that he doesn't say when Christ, who is in your life, or Christ, who's on the throne of your life. No, no, he says it very clear Christ, who is our life meaning that Jesus has become now our our source of power, our source of strength. And I like to think of it, anything you need, any quality of life that you need, be it kindness, patience, gentleness, wisdom, compassion, love, whatever you need in that moment, you and I have in Christ. And he's providing it to us. He's waiting for us. He says, take it. Trust me. I will be everything you need. Romans 6, 5, for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, if we were united with him when Jesus died on that cross and when he was buried on the cross, certainly we all shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. You're a new you with a new spirit that is so good, so pure, it is now qualified to house the Holy Spirit that God himself can take up permanent residence inside of you because of what Jesus has done, which means you're not alone today. Isn't that a beautiful word? I look around this world, and I see those four great apostles, Paul, John, Ringo, and George. Look at all the lonely people. There's a lot of lonely people out there. And I feel that at times. I feel all alone. Does, does anybody care about me? Does anyone, is anyone interested in me and my story? Is anyone interested in what's going on in my life? And Jesus says, I do. I care. One day what he did is he, he revealed to me the joy he feels that him and I are one. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get over it. It, it blew my mind. I remember waking up one morning and my, my first thought, normally my first thought, that's normally what it's like. But, but this morning I woke up and I had this, this picture of like a kid on Christmas morning, big smile, big excitement. And it was Jesus. And he was like right in my face. And he says, can you believe we get to do today together? And he had so much joy and excitement that he and I were gonna live today together. That's every day. And and I I I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around, but like you're excited about me? You're you're excited just to be with me? Like, are we gonna do anything big and exciting? Nope. (laughs) We're gonna hang out. And it's gonna be a good day. And I can't wait. And I'm not alone. And neither are you. Christ is in you and he's with you everywhere you go. Isn't that a good word, Cheryl? To know you got Jesus for you, with you, on your side. And and you know what? The reality is that truth changed everything in my life. Because I thought I was trying to do it for him. And now I'm learning I get to do it with him. So what's our response to all this? How, how, do we, how do we move forward? And I think really what it comes down to is the more you see who Jesus is, the more you want to worship him. In, uh, in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, I think we see, again, the heart of God and what he's done Speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning he didn't didn't see the need to stay in heaven as God. He didn't see it as something he had to hold on to, and so he let go. He he is God, always will be God, always has been God, but he came and he lived as a man. And in verse 7, it says, he emptied himself. Literally, what it means is he gave up all of his rights, every single one of them. And he took the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of man. But remember, he didn't show up as a fully grown man. He showed up as a little baby, a helpless babe. And he grew up in this world. And he faced the teasing and the bullying and the rejection. He faced all of that stuff. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That's how much he loves you and I. It was more than a demonstration, but that's what it was. It demonstrated, it proved to us that he loves you. So if you're ever wondering, does he really love me? Remember the cross. And so in verse 9, for this reason... Because of what Jesus did, because of his attitude in going to the cross, God highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that at every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If, if he's worthy of God exalting him, How much more is he worthy of our exalting him, of our praise and our glorifying him, and our faithfulness and our trust and our worship. But please understand that that worship, that obedience even, is much more than behavior. Because you can can follow the rules and still not worship God. Because he's not after that. He's not after the, the external outward behavior. What does God want more than anything? He wants your heart. He wants you. Because that's what he needs. He, think about it. He does not need you and I to serve him. How do I know that? Because he created the universe without you. Right? If he can do that, I'm pretty sure he can do whatever he wants without you. But he wants to do it with you. He invites you Now. But the only way that you're going to be able to do it with him is if you give him your heart. So in Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brethren. I mean, he's just laid out in 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, he just laid out the glory of our gospel that we're justified, made right, and we have peace with God. And the old you is gone, and you're no longer the, the, the sinner. You're a saint, not under the law, but under grace, the life of Jesus and the power of Jesus inside of you. We have all of this. Therefore, I urge you, I implore you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, some have interpreted that as, "Okay, you got to get holy, and then you can present yourself to God. Well, if that's the case, what do you have to do to get living? Nothing, right? You're already alive and you're already holy. All he's saying is show up. Here I am, Lord. I'm presenting myself as a new creation, someone that you have made alive, someone that you have made holy, and that's acceptable to God because that's all you want. This is my act of worship. Many months ago, we were still in the theater. Robin had this great message, and I, I encourage you to look it up and watch it again. He had a great message on, on how worship is more than singing. That what we did earlier this morning was worship, but it was just worship through singing. That worship really isn't, isn't a specific act. It's really our trust in him. It's our dependence on him. And so you can worship him at work by doing your job. You can worship him by doing the laundry. You can worship him by cleaning the toilets. You can worship him by going grocery shopping. You can worship him by praying with another person. You can worship him by evangelism. Anything you do trusting him is an act of worship. And that's what he's after. So here I am, Lord, I give you my heart to worship. I give you my heart in obedience. And I give you my heart in trusting you. That's all he wants. That's all he wants from you and I. I keep coming back to my mind, this picture of of Jesus overlooking Jerusalem. It's really close to when he's about to be arrested and crucified. So it's at the end of his his time on earth, and he's sitting there alone, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he he laments. In Matthew 23, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How I've longed to take you under my wing like, like a mother, mother hen would take her little chicks and protect them that's what I want to do I want to protect you Danya. I want you to come under my wing I want to love you but he says to Israel but you weren't willing don't be like Israel don't don't reject him don't be afraid of him don't think you're not good enough for him. He's like, come, come to me. Let me love on you, because that's his heart. Let me close with one more passage. Out of the mouth of babes, Jesus is love. That's true. First John 4, it says God is love. It's not, it's not what he has. It's not what he does. It's, it's his description of his very nature. God is love. And therefore, Jesus is love. And so what I want us to do is is I want us to think about that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, the one read at marriages, at weddings, about what love is. Paul here is trying to show these people a greater way. But I want you to understand, what Paul's really doing is he's defining for us, he's describing for us the nature of Jesus. So I want to read this passage to you, but I want to replace the word love with Jesus so it's abundantly clear about who Jesus is. So beginning in verse 4, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant. He does not act unbecomingly. He does not seek its own. He's not provoked. He does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. Let me pray, Father, you're bigger than we could ever imagine. You're better than we could ever imagine. You love us more than we could ever imagine. You desire us more than we can imagine. And we don't deserve it, but that's not the point. Because it's not being measured or evaluated on that scale. You offer this love freely to any and all. All you ask is that we pick it up. All that you ask is that we actually open our hearts to you and trust you. All that you ask is that we just show up and trust and obedience and faithfulness and we experience life real life not, not the life that this world is offering us no, something far better something that's far purer something that really satisfies because we're not alone anymore in your name we pray Amen
0: You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast Thanks for joining us If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.